Find out on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. Just your point of view How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all Planets are spinning through space Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to have with me uh, back after the commercial break, Dr. Larry Parks. Larry, we talked before the break about uh, this notion that there's not enough gold to go around. You mentioned uh, that that's really what what happened. The banks were fraudulent during the 1930s, basically, and they uh, and Roosevelt uh, made an excuse essentially uh, for for uh, confiscating gold. Um, and but I'm hearing the same discussion these days. I mean, when you when you propose the notion that we should go back to a sound monetary and asset based monetary system of gold and or silver. People say, well, there's not enough of the metal to go around, given the enormous amounts of money created. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the answer is there isn't enough gold to redeem all this paper. But that's not a problem for gold. That's a problem of issuing all this paper. And really, you know, uh, going back to Roosevelt, I mean, this didn't happen only in the 30s. This business of the banks issuing promissory notes to redeem the paper on demand, uh, this goes back, you know, to the 17th century. However, in the 19th century in America, the amount of promises that the banks issued were limited, uh, in fact, because with minor exception, bank officers and directors were personally liable to depositors. Personally liable. So if the bank went bust, the houses, the assets, everything owned by the bank officers and directors, that would go into the pot. But when the 20th century rolled around, now you have this corporate veil, and now they can shoot the moon. If they win, they keep the winnings. If they don't, other people take the hit. So back to this business of not enough gold. Until Roosevelt gave that fireside chat on March 12, 1933, you will never find any place in the literature anyone claiming that there's not enough gold. There's plenty of gold. And very importantly, uh, for those folks listening, uh, we are not advocating the system where irredeemable, where paper is backed by gold. That is not what we're talking about. That is not what the Constitution requires. There's nothing in the Constitution, by the way, about the gold standard. What the Constitution requires, and the founders realized this, is gold and silver as money. Now, you're not going to carry around gold and silver. You're going to deposit someplace and get a piece of paper, but the piece of paper is not money. So it's like I pay you with a check, Jay. I haven't paid you till you cash the check. If I pay with a credit card, I haven't actually paid until you get your money. It's mm-hmm. important for people to understand that the money needs to be gold and silver. Mm-hmm. 
saying this is really what the founders intended, and this is the way the Constitution is written. And all of these politicians have taken a solemn oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. Let's have it the way it's supposed to be. And that protects ordinary people. So a lot of times you see in, in, in the newspapers now, uh, this guy, fellow Zolik heads the World Bank, uh, started talking about a gold standard, and all of the guys like uh, Brad DeLong and others come out and they say it's not workable. Well, they're right. It isn't workable. But workable for whom? It's not workable for, for, for the financial guys. Mm-hmm. But if you have gold and silver as money, it's very workable for the manufacturers. It's very workable for ordinary people. I mean, how would you like your pension, Jay, to be a pile of gold as opposed to a piece of paper where they're promising you something and you have counterparty risk? I have a notion that if, if my pension fund were in gold, I would have some purchasing power left. I'm not sure that I'm going to have too much with the pension fund, that the pension plan that I have, the meager one that I have as it is. But, uh, okay, so are you talking then, Larry, about, you know, we have this fractional reserve system, right? So are you talking about a, a system that would not allow banks to leverage up on the gold that they're holding in their, uh, in their coffers? It's not a matter of not allowed, Jay. I mean, banks can do whatever they want. I mean, first of all, they shouldn't be guaranteed. The balance sheets should not be guaranteed by the taxpayers. I'm right. talking about that the money should be gold and silver, not mm-hmm. bank notes, not Federal Reserve notes, not any kind of piece of paper, not something that's redeemable, backed by, linked to, somehow connected to gold. The money needs to be gold and silver. Mm-hmm. And the guys who really thought this through the best uh, were the founders, and they had had an experience with paper money uh, and also, they knew about the uh, the French experience, uh, you know, after after the revolution, um, and they knew about John Law. You know, at the par- by the way, every time you had paper money, the paper money went away. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no exceptions. Mm-hmm. So when they wrote the Constitution, uh, in Article One, Section Eight, they give the Congress the power to coin money, mm-hmm. not print it. There is no power to print money. There is mm-hmm. no there is no authorization for paper money. But to coin money, which means a medal. A coin, well, actually, in Article 1, Section 10, they say that the states may make a payment only in gold and silver. They're talking about gold and silver. Mm-hmm. I want to tell you a story. This is a very good story about Thomas Jefferson, which will give you a feel for why the founders felt so strongly on this issue. May I tell you that story? Sure. Sure. So it seems Jefferson was married to a woman whose father was one of the richest men in the colonies. His name was uh, John Wales. And he made his fortune primarily from slave trading, and he was also a very large plantation owner in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And John Wales died in 1773, and he left a huge estate. By the way, the source of this information comes from a wonderful book. It's mistitled. The title of the book is called Principal and Interest. The author is Herbert Sloan, who heads the history department at Barnard College at Columbia. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so, so John Wales left this huge estate. He made Jefferson and Jefferson's two brothers-in-law the executors of the estate. Uh, the fact, though, it turned out Jefferson was really in charge. And the assets of the estate were worth something like 20,000, 30,000 pounds, I forget, the, which consisted of slaves and plantations. And the liabilities were 11,000 pounds, which was uh, money that uh, Wales owed to financiers in Britain. In those days, and today as well, if a executor distributes the assets of an estate without settling out the liabilities, he becomes personally liable for the, for the liabilities. <laughs> personally liable. But in this case, the assets were so much greater than the liabilities, and besides, Jefferson's two brothers-in-law wanted their share. Jefferson felt comfortable in doing that, and so he sold the slaves and the 
um, and the uh, plantations. And in those days in Virginia, people didn't have enough money to make a big purchase like this. And the way they would do it is what we call today vendor financing or seller's mortgage. Uh, in those days, the terminology was that the buyer would issue a bond to the seller. And over time, the buyer would pay off the bond. And that's what happened in this instance. However, in 1776, the revolution started. Virginia issued paper money. They made the paper money legal tender. The purchasing power of that paper money went to zero. And the people who owed Jefferson the money on the bonds paid him off with the worthless money. Mm. But Jefferson still owed the 11,000 pounds to the financiers in Britain. And his whole life, he was never able to work his way out of that debt. And he died a bankrupt. They tried auctioning off his stuff at Monticello, didn't bring in enough money. And so when Jefferson said that the paper money was a cheat, he wasn't talking about from, from economic grounds or, you know, some theory. He had actually been cheated and big time. And mm. so had all of the other gentry in Virginia, including James Madison. Madison was a large plantation owner. He saw the revolution coming. He had leased his plantations. And the people to whom he leased it paid him off with the worthless money. And the same thing for George Washington. And so when they went to the Constitutional Convention, now they got Jefferson out of town as the ambassador to France. They weren't supposed to write the Constitution. They were supposed to amend the Articles of Confederation, which were thought to be defective because it didn't give the government the power to tax. And what they did was they used the Articles of Confederation as a template, and they went down all the items in the Articles and transferred it to the Constitution the Articles allowed the government to issue, the Congress to issue paper money. It's called the Mitting Bills of Credit. Mm. When they got to that part, they debated it, and they overwhelmingly voted it down. There mm. is no authorization in the Constitution for paper money. Wow. And so they gave, in Article 1, Section 8, says to give the Congress the power to coin money. That's it. So, so, business, so this business of issuing paper money, the government never issued paper money, you know, prior to the uh, uh, prior to the uh, uh, Civil War. Mm-hmm. I mean, all that paper money was bank money, and it wasn't legal tender. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, very interesting. Of course, nobody seems to pay much attention to that constitutional issue these days, do they? Well, the government schools don't teach about the Constitution anymore. No. And even in college, now they have this notion. Uh, Dr. Vieira likes to say the living constitution depends who living. They just just keep modifying it as they go along. Exactly. Uh, The constitution really protects us, and one of the things we should be doing is looking to the constitution. Well, we do know, you and I do know, that there's one congressman who is uh, really uh, really championing exactly that, and that's Ron Ron Paul. Ron Paul is our hero in the Congress and a longtime friend and very supportive of what we're doing here at the Foundation for the Advancement of Monetary Education. Absolutely, he, he is. He is and on our advisory board, and he, he is the best. And I'm you have... that his son is going to follow in his footsteps. Let's, let's hope that he will. Um, I, I, like, I find this interesting, uh, very interesting idea that the bankers at one time were personally liable. Uh, I mean, that's really what we need to bring back, isn't it? it? Now it's the opposite. It's like if the bankers screw up, we as taxpayers are liable to the bankers. That's it's incredible. Right. It's perverted, isn't it? Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a uh, I mean, I have the reference, but it's, I think it was in, in one of these towns in Italy, it was, I think it was in the 14th century. Uh, the banks had overpromised, the bank went bust, and the remedy for the people in that town, they took that banker right out and they hunk him right on the spot. Mm-hmm. I mean, has well, that the disincentive, you know, for screwing around with people's money? 
Uh, Larry, you, you say sometimes, and, and maybe you can just clarify this, why do you say that the U.S. monetary system violates the rule of law? Well, because it's not in conformity with the Constitution. I mean, the okay. Constitution is the overriding law of our land, and anything that's not in conformity with the Constitution cannot be lawful. And mm-hmm. so the irredeemable paper tickets that we call dollars, they're not dollars. Mm-hmm. And also, the Constitution does not give the Congress the power to create money. And by the way, Jay, the only way you can create anything, the only one who creates anything is God. The rest of us have to produce it. Mm-hmm. All right. That's a good so, point. So there's no, there's no creating dollars. You actually have to produce dollars. And the way our government is set up originally is that the sovereignty for the monetary system rests with the people, not with some banking cartel. And if mm-hmm. the people want more money, they've got to go mine gold or silver, take it to the mint. We had uh, 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 free coinage, and the silver or gold gets minted into coins. That's how you get more money into society. Not the banks do this business with the money multiplier and whatnot. This is all dishonest. Mm-hmm. Or, of course, the companies that are sponsors of this show go out and find the gold. They mine it from the earth, and that would be another way. Uh, well, yeah, and then that gold is taken to the mint. That's mm-hmm. what free coinage was about. Mm-hmm. And the mint would take that gold or silver and make it into coins. Mm-hmm. And the penalty, by the way, in the Coinage Act of 1792 for screwing around with that was death. They didn't fool around in those days. Um, people took money. People have to. You know, you, de- you depend for fu- for future for your future years. There comes a time for everybody. Everybody listening to the show. Everybody on the planet. There comes a time when you can't work anymore. You get sick. You get old or whatnot. And the only way you're able to stay alive is you have to have savings. Mm-hmm. And that savings better be something that's real because if it's an irredeemable paper tickets and that becomes worthless, you have no way to live. Well, that remember this guy Paul Klebnikov. Does that name ring a bell to you? Not offhand, Larry. He was, he was oh. the editor for Forbes that got murdered in, in Russia a few years ago. Uh-huh. I run a couple of speaker programs here in New York. I became friendly with him. And mm-hmm. he told me that when the Russian ruble collapsed, longevity went down five years for men, four years for women. Wow. So if you're old and your savings disappear, how do you buy the stuff you need to stay alive? Mm-hmm. And the answer is you don't and you die. Mm-hmm. That's how important money is. Well, we've been trained to think that somehow the government will take care of us, haven't we? We've got Social Security, supposedly, and people are really, again, it's a faith issue. We're putting our faith in these same people that are maybe the foxes that are guarding the chicken coop, so to speak. You know, Jay, it's, it's wishful thinking. I mean, today the Congress has something like a 20% approval rating. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, people do not trust them, and they shouldn't trust them. Mm-hmm. And so the notion that they trust them, you know, with their pensions, with their longevity money and whatnot, it's really crazy. I mean, if people want to protect themselves, the best thing they could do right now, right now, is to go out and buy U.S. gold eagles and take possession and put those gold eagles in a vault. That is the very best thing people can do. Well, okay, Larry, that leads me to a question uh, that I know is on the minds of many, many people. I know how you're going to answer it because you and I have talked about it before. But what happens um, if we do that? Isn't it possible the government confiscated gold once in the United States? Isn't it? very possible, if not likely, that if wealth is transferred from the dollar to gold and silver, that they won't do it again. Uh, Jay, it's possible. However, uh, the reason they did it that time was because gold was still a monetary metal and people were using it as money. No one's using it as money anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't circulate. Uh, You might say that uh, they might want to grab it because uh, they might want to use it as money and, and pull it in. Truth, truth be known, the politicians can do anything they want. 
Mm-hmm. But if you don't, but uh, gold is the safest way to play this. If you don't uh, change your irredeemable paper tickets into gold, what are you going to change it into? No, that's the point. Uh, silver, possibly, but that's all. Well, the, the trouble thing. with silver, Jay, is that it's it's very bulky, mm-hmm. and so with silver, it is very hard for you to take possession. So half a million dollars worth of silver is about maybe today. It's probably about twelve hundred pounds, half a ton. Mm. Where are you going to yeah. put it? I don't know. Uh, half a million dollars worth of gold is a, let's see, that would be about. Um, um, what, what, uh, uh, 300, 300 gold coins. It's about yeah. the size of maybe uh, 20 rolls of quarters. Mm-hmm. You can easily put that into a safe deposit box. Mm-hmm. So the problem with silver is you can't take possession. Larry, That's you... a practical matter. Right, I understand that. You can have small amounts of silver coins around and, and you know, can keep them, but any serious <laughs> amount of wealth is very difficult to store in silver. I, I get it. Um, Larry, you're, you're of the opinion, and, and I know that you and I both agree on this, and lots of our friends do too, that the U.S. monetary system is going to blow up. Uh, provide some evidence. Uh, help us, help those of our listeners that may not be as familiar with this issue and why you think it's going to blow up. And, and how is it going to, is it going to blow up into a hyperinflation, or are we going to see some sort of an implosion or deflationary uh, collapse of the banking system? hyperinflation 100%. And the reason you know for sure, and you can be absolutely certain that it's going to blow up, and you know, Jay, my, my original background was science and engineering. Any scientist, any engineer, cross-culture, cross-time will confirm to you that any system that doesn't have a self-correcting mechanism blows up. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in your body, uh, you get some kind of sickness or whatnot, the white corpuscles. Corpuscles spring into action and whatnot, but without that self-correcting mechanism, you die. If you have mm-hmm. a coffee pot that's blowing, you know, you heat it up and whatnot, you have a spout. It, as, as the steam pressure builds up, the steam escapes, it goes back, you have a self-correcting mechanism. The self-correcting mechanism in the monetary system used to be, up until August 15, 1971, was that some of the irredeemable paper ticket dollars created of nothing were redeemable by foreign governments and foreign central banks at the rate of $35 for an ounce of gold. That was, that was the self-correcting mechanism. After that self-correcting mechanism was severed, now there is no mechanism for increasing financial wealth, increasing debt, and increasing leverage. And if you look at any of the charts, you see they're all going exponential. Mm-hmm. And history tells us that whenever the monetary authorities have the ability to issue paper ticket money, there always comes a time when they cannot resist the temptation to overissue. And the Catholic Church has a line for this, and the Catholic Church has this exactly right. And the line is, in the face of temptation, reason succumbs. Mm-hmm. And one of the books I've been pushing, I'm annotating it now. I'm sure you've seen it, uh, Fiat Money, Inflation in France by Andrew yes. and White. So White was, as you may know, was, the, uh, was uh, president of Cornell University. He was one of the preeminent uh, historians of the 19th century. And after the Civil War, he collected everything there was about uh, in France and in the United States about the French experience with irritable paper ticket money after the revolution. He wrote this wonderful book. You can buy it off Amazon. It's, it's, it's 90 pages. It's a quick, easy, entertaining read. And the reason it's important is because the same arguments at that time put forth in the French Parliament is the same stuff we're hearing from Chairman Bernanke and all these people who say Krugman and whatnot. You've got to keep printing. Mm-hmm. And as you keep printing, there comes a time when they just print too much, and the next thing you know, the whole thing's worthless. And so as they're printing in France, the first thing they do is they have penalties for people who will not take the paper money, just like our wage and price controls. And so they might seize their goods, put them in irons, irons, 
And then a second defense, uh, they find them and they put them in irons for 30 years. And finally, they passed something called the law of the maximum. If you didn't accept the paper money, they would kill you. Mm-hmm. All right. But the point is, uh, people of their free will never take paper money if they have a choice. And the mm-hmm. guys who put their finger right on this and had it exactly right in the 19th century was the American labor movement. And they said, and this had to do with legal tender. They said, if the money's good, why do you have to force people to use it? Wow. And if the money's not good, why should you force people to use it? And the reason they force you to use it here is because the paper ticket money provides incredible profits to the financial sector. And as Dick Durbin said, the financial guys have bought off the Congress. You see what's happened here? This is wealth transfer. Well, it and people happens. better wake up and protect themselves or they're going to find themselves at the short end of the stick when the, when the irredeemable paper ticket money approaches its cost of production, which always happens, which is near zero. We're going to have a country full of paupers, those that don't protect their wealth by switching their paper into something of, of lasting value. Larry, I want to ask you, we are almost out of time here, but I want to ask you, you talked about this uh, irresistible urge to keep printing money, to, and it grows almost exponentially, doesn't it? Well, there's always a reason to print more money. I mean, today, if you look at the fiscal situation, you know, for the United States government, they got trillion-dollar deficits every year as far as the eye can see. How are those deficits going to be funded? And we're talking now about all the entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. I mean, I mean you get, the list is endless. And I'm not the only – I mean, lots of people have rung the bell on this. Uh, Pete Peterson uh, uh, with his Concord Coalition and many others have rung the bell. But you don't see any, any reduction in spending. No, you Matter don't. of fact, you know, if you take a chart, and I've made these charts, and government spending just keeps going up. Yep, and you so, really do. And, and, and we had on this show Lawrence, uh, Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff of Boston University, uh, who I believe is a member of the Peterson Institute. He talked about the unfunded liabilities of the United States, the present value of the unfunded liabilities as being something like $202 trillion, not the 9 or $12 trillion that the government owns up to. So my point is this. We're seeing now QE2 quantitative easing, too, which is just really a euphemism for printing money. Do you think there's going to be a QE3, a QE4, et cetera, et cetera? Undoubtedly. By the way, I did a a very strong television program last week on this, and anybody who wants to watch it, if you just go on Blip TV, that's Uh blip.tv, search Larry Parks, uh, Larry Parks Show, you'll see this, I call it a QE2, Money Creation Gone Wild. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a very strong show. Like and Girls Gone Wild, but this is money creation gone wild. Exactly. That's how I start the show. I mean, remember Girls Gone Wild? They take the they take the clothes off, whatnot. It's Money Gone Wild, boy. Girls Gone Wild have nothing on this. Uh, These uh, people are out of control. A monetary orgy. That's By the way, lip. just two, two days ago, one more th- yeah. thing, very important. Uh, two days ago, I was at the uh, New York Society of Security Analysts for a presentation by James uh, Bullard. He is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And in response to a question from me, he said in so many words, and it's a very close paraphrase, the dollar is, is the a domain of the Treasury. Because mm. I'd asked him you know, what, what the contingency plan was if the, in the event the dollar starts to depreciate. I mean, what are mm-hmm. these guys going to do? Mm-hmm. And he said in so many words, I mean, and, uh, it's not word for word, but it's close to it. He said, well, that's the Treasury's problem. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's going to be everybody's problem, I think, Larry, and it's going to be everybody's everybody's problem that hasn't prepared themselves. And this is what this show is about, this show called Turning Hard Times into Good Times, is trying to 
understand the problems so that we can protect ourselves. And I think you've done a remarkable job of helping our audience, our listeners, understand a little bit better. And honestly, I would suggest very strongly to our listeners that they not only go uh, to Blip TV and uh, and do a search for Larry Parks, uh, Lawrence, Dr. Lawrence Parks, but also you have a website that is very, very informative. Could you tell our listeners what that it's is, Larry? Fame.org, F-A-M-E.org. Fame stands for the Foundation for the Advancement of Monetary Education. It's an excellent site, folks. I've been there many times. It's, there's a lot of great quotes. There's a lot of great articles. There's just a lot of great education. Larry, thank you so much for being with us uh, today. We'll definitely have to have you on again sometime because you have a wealth of information, and you are helping people help themselves because you really can't put your faith in government. Uh, our founding fathers understood that. That's why they wanted our government to be limited, and they wanted people to, uh, you know, to be honest, to work hard. And uh, we've been deceived, but honestly, we've maybe not cared enough. Maybe we're too interested in Desperate Housewives or the football games or whatever it is. Nothing wrong, I suppose, with a little entertainment. But, boy, we better be awake. I think it was Thomas Jefferson that said the price of of liberty is eternal vigilance. And, Larry, you have been very vigilant. I want to thank you again for all of your help uh, to me over the years, and thank you for sharing your thoughts and ideas. Again, I want to encourage all of you to go to Fame. Uh, dot org and go to blip tv and and uh, google in larry parks uh, to get his latest television show there's so much information there's so much good information quality information not just is it interesting but it's going to help you save your wealth and save your uh, the well-being of your family and those you love thank you very much larry for being with us folks don't go away after the uh, at the turn of the uh, after the next commercial, we're going to have Eric Sprott back with us. Eric Sprott is one of the preeminent investors in Canada, and Eric understands. I have an idea that Larry is going to agree with most of what, or I should say, Eric is going to agree with most of what Larry just said. Uh, but in any event, uh, Eric will probably also have some great investment ideas to share with you. So don't go away. We'll be right back at the uh, at the top of the hour with Eric Sprott. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to jtaylor at miningstocks.com. 
That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank you for listening to the show and making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I am really pleased to have with me today Eric Sprott. Eric is very well known in Canada, less so, I dare say, in the United States, but I think it's high time that people do learn to know him here in the U.S. as well because he has been one of, really been on the right side of the equity, commodities, and precious metals markets over the past 10 years or so, while most of the mainstream investors have not gotten it right for the most part. Uh, as an American who covers the natural resources uh, markets, of course, I have known Eric for some time and known of him. Uh, and the brief encounters I've had with him has told me that he is not only a very successful investor and businessman, but he is also a classy gentleman who appears to be very humble for someone with his level of success. Uh, Eric has accumulated 35 years of experience in the investment community. Uh, after earning his designation as a chartered accountant, uh, he entered the investment industry as a special, uh, as a research analyst at Merrill Lynch. And in 1981, he founded uh, Sprott Securities, now called Cormac Securities, uh, which today is one of Canada's largest independently owned securities firms. After establishing Sprott Asset Management, Inc. in December 2001 as a separate entity, Eric divested his entire ownership of Sprott Securities to its employees. Eric's investment abilities are well represented in his track record in managing the Sprott Hedge Fund, LP, Sprott Hedge Fund, uh, LP2, uh, Sprott Bull Bear RSP Fund, Sprott Offshore Funds, Sprott Canadian Equity Funds, Sprott Energy Fund, and Sprott Managed Accounts. He has way too many awards to continue reading on here, or we won't have any time left for Eric to talk. So I just want to get on to the discussion with Eric. Welcome, Eric, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Jay, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it was certainly uh, I've been aware of your contribution in the Nat Resource area, and I'm sure your listeners are very happy that uh, you've pushed as hard as you have for them to be uh, invested in the right place in this last decade. Well, that's very kind of you to say that, Eric. I, I, uh, I, I thank you for that. But I, I think that you have been a hero uh, in this industry. You have uh, been funding junior mining companies when precious few other people would a few years ago when the gold price was down, oh, you know, off, bouncing off that $250 level there a few years ago. Uh, and uh, you have been putting your money, your firm's money, um, your investors' money into the resource sector because you saw something that most most um, mainstream people didn't see. Uh, so I want to explore some of the, some of your ideas about the economy, about the macroeconomic picture, and what you see there, um, what's going on now, and more importantly, where we should go from here. We've had a nice run. We certainly have had a good run. So we want to know, you know, how much further is this going to go? Uh, anyway, in an article that you co-authored a couple of weeks back with David Franklin, uh, who, by the way, was on this show uh, a, f- a couple of weeks back, uh, you quite clearly left it be known that you don't expect quantitative easing will be very effective. I want to ask you why you think that, but before you respond to that question, I also want to ask you if you think the first installment of quantitative easing was successful, and then uh, also what would have happened if we didn't get QE1? Right. Well, it's interesting. Uh, well, I think the, the easiest thing to decide in, in that sort of multiplicity of questions is that uh, I, I think that QE1 was a failure. I mean, yes, the stock market rallied, but from an economics point, which really you must have the economy 
kicking along to sustain a stock market. But I think that, you know, the green shoots that we all saw back in uh, in uh, 09, uh, as we got into 10, we realized, well, it's not nearly as robust as we imagined it. So I would say that uh, QE1 was not a success. And had it been a success, it's kind of like priming a pump that it should then be left alone. Mm-hmm. The fact that we've had to have QE2 in such a quick fashion, I think is a statement about what QE1 was. And, and in my mind, what I regard both the QEs as, it's a methodology for the Fed to finance treasury borrowing. Hmm. Because I don't think there are buyers for the bonds. As you know, they have to issue a trillion and a half bonds each year. And, and it's very coincidental that, you know, these programs are going to be each uh, purchasing that kind of level of bonds. And I'm sure QE2 will be extended or they'll call it QE3 as, as, month, as soon as we get past June uh, 30th next year. So I don't regard uh, either the QEs as something that's going to sustain us. It may provide some liquidity, but I might also add that there's been some pretty significant work done both on liquidity and deficit spending by people who would be considered kind of contrarians or people who have uh, unique views and views that don't work in the mainstream that have suggested both deficit spending doesn't work, uh, which uh, various people at Harvard University have opined on, and that liquidity really uh, is not going to sustain you. So I, my whole view has been that even since 2000, when we got on the gold bandwagon or precious metals bandwagon, we're going into a bear market. We're still in a bear market, but we have all these forces fighting it all the way, and we'll see where that all gets us. Mm. Uh, Ian McAvity, I know, recently pointed out, getting to the QE1 issue that we uh, that we've had. I, I guess he figured something like 150 billion dollars in GDP growth, but three and a half trillion dollars worth of stimulus and, and debt. So, I guess getting back then um, to the question of, uh, you know, do you, why do you think? Um, do you, so you think this this isn't going to work? So where do we go from here? We've got uh, you know QE two. What's that going to do to us? Mm-hmm. In fact, let me add on to uh, Ian's work because mm-hmm. we actually uh, did an article where we summed up all the various programs that uh, have evolved over the last few, few years, two years, and they added up to seven point nine trillion. And I'm talking about you know bailing out GMAC, AIG, Fannie, Freddie, all the different for the TARPs, the TELFs, the whatever. Mm-hmm. And when when we look at the sum total of GDP growth in that two-year period, it's about $200 billion of GDP growth with $7.9 trillion of stimulus. So the people who argue that uh, stimulus does not work, I think, have been proven incredibly correct here because – we can't just we can't even get this this thing uh, lit up. There's just no way that we're getting it. And we have the debt at the end of the day, of course, which is yeah. the biggest problem. Yeah, indeed. And it reminds me very much of what Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary said after the uh, uh, after after stimulus measures were tra- were attempted during the Great Depression. That uh, after eight years, they had as much unemployment as they had at the start, and they had all of this debt to boot. We're not seeing any improvement in the real economy, are we? Uh, hardly anything. Hardly any, anyway. You, you get some months when uh, car sales go up or that home sales go up or, mm-hmm. you know, a month when retail's up 0.8 for the month and then the next month it's at down 0.1 or something. But 
it has been so lackluster, we just don't see job growth. And even, for example, the, the data that came out last week that suggested we had 150,000 new jobs, that was the BIS, BLS survey. Um, the household survey said we lost 350,000 jobs. So uh, it's hard to imagine us adding jobs when so many uh, levels of government have to keep pruning back here and uh, the consumer just doesn't have the wherewithal to buy more in volume. In fact, because there's a lot of inflation in energy and food prices, the consumer's ability to, to buy, other than those invested in gold stocks, must be diminishing. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly would seem to be the case. Uh, the, real, uh, the real purchasing power of Americans, I mean, they're losing their jobs, their jobs, uh, you know, they're, they're seeing lower wages, lower wage jobs. I mean, this has been a trend for some time. But let me ask you, Eric, how do you think this QE2 is going to play out then? Will it be a harmless thing or will it cause some damage either on the inflationary side or a deflationary side? How do you see it playing out? How do you think it's going yeah. to play out? I mean, it's a huge question that I really haven't uh, come down on in the sense that, you know, could we start a hyperinflation or do we just find out that it doesn't work and, you know, the economy keeps uh, bottom bouncing along and then maybe when when we realize it it hasn't caused any economic stimulus, do we then get a market sell-off? And if you get a market sell-off, of course, you will have a lot of deflation Mm -hmm. unless we just go into outright extreme printing. Uh, but, you know, when you listen to the views of people outside of the United States now commenting on mm-hmm. QE2, it is not a very pleasant thing what, you know, the Chinese are saying and the Brazilians are saying and many other voices out there who up to this point have almost been quiescent. And now they're becoming quite forceful, and including the Dutch, uh, the uh, German finance minister. I mean, they're using some harsh words when it comes to their assessments of uh, QE2. I haven't uh, decided which way it's going to go because Mm -hmm. you might keep this stock market up through sort of the extend and pretend policies and we keep uh, bumbling along. Um, I happened, one of my great acquaintances is a fellow named Ian Gordon, who I'm sure you know very well. Ian's a personal friend of mine. I've had him on this show uh, a couple of times and yes, I know him very well. And he's a deflationist and I've kind of been in his school since uh, 2000. Uh, I mean, they're trying everything they can to create inflation, but maybe the the forces at work won't let them create inflation. Mm -hmm. In other words, if people turn their back on the currency of the bond market and rates everyone up, I mean, it would just be an utter disaster. So I'm not saying which way the the dime's going to fall here because I think we can wait. Uh, One thing that I feel very confident from an investment point of view is that if you're involved in precious metals, either way, you're going to maintain and or improve your purchasing power by owning those securities. So it's not critical for me to have to make that decision at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, would you see gold perhaps being a better, a better metal to own than silver in a deflationary implosion, and perhaps silver better if we go in the other direction? Or, or... Well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, I happen to love silver today. I really do. I think silver might very well be... Uh, the investment of, of this decade, whereas gold was the investment of the last decade, and of course I love gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people might think that uh, silver would underperform if you were in a def- in a deflationary environment, um, and that's because of the industrial uses of the metal. But if enough people get distressed 
about their currencies. And let's face it, if you go into a deflationary environment, the odds of the debt being paid off start diminishing very, very quickly. And the leverage in the banking system just comes back to kill you. So you need to own something real. And there's so little silver to own that I think the investment demand would wait, would uh, certainly counteract any decline in uh, industrial, the waning of industrial demand for silver. So I, I think silver is going to be the investment of this decade. So you favor would favor silver no matter which way this tips uh, if we go inflation or deflation. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, Jay, the question, because, uh, I mean, I've been in it for 10 years, and I've really been a gold guy for 10 years, yeah. 11 years, and I can now see forces at work that tell me that silver is going to do something that's a little unusual going forward here. Mm-hmm. So that's why, as we talk today, I sound more like a silver bug than a gold bug, but I've been a gold bug for 11 years, and I'm not changing my spots. I just can see evidence of uh, why silver should rise faster. Indeed. Um, well, gold has risen from, you know, let's say roughly around $250 as early as, I mean, as recently as 2002. It's, it had gone over 1400 I guess maybe we're a little below that today. But yeah. yet, as I've walked down the streets of New York here, I don't find many people at all talking about the virtues of buying gold and or silver. Um, of course, the world I live in, the world you live in, we know people who are buying uh, gold and silver, the bullion, as well as uh, shares and ETFs yeah. and the like. But to drive the price up a gold, the price of gold up so dramatically as it has, it's not just a crazy few little retail investors that are buying it. Some pretty good-sized investors, people have to be buying gold in fairly good volume. Now, besides spread asset management, you guys yeah. buy a fair amount of it. Who are some of the other big players? Do you think that are out there? that are really causing the gold price and sure. the silver price to rise? Well, there's certainly a phalanx of new investors, and, and I would call, you know, some of us have been, have been involved with, with it for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I would say a new phalanx came in a couple of years ago. John Paulson got involved, David Einhorn, George Soros, and, of course, these are all leading-edge guys. Mm-hmm. And I think their involvement... Uh, allowed the thought that, gee, maybe any ordinary investor or mutual fund manager or pension fund even could go there. Uh, But I can tell you from firsthand experience, it's very difficult to get pension funds interested in gold other than, you know, they'll buy the normal stocks that have to go into any uh, any portfolio. Right. So it's, it's, it's a bit like uh, pulling teeth to get them all in, and I don't really think the public's been as involved as we might imagine with something having gone up by, you know, five or six hundred percent here. Well, and one thing, I, one thing I'll leave with your listeners, Jay, mm-hmm. uh, as I toured the, the United States and Canada trying to sell the Sprott Physical Silver Trust, I was struck by how little institutions knew about the silver market. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was. I was just blown away by their lack of knowledge of the people who were involved in the silver industry. That's interesting. These are the professionals, of course. These are the professionals, Mm -hmm. and they hadn't really studied it. Mm -hmm. Well, it hasn't been put out in front of them. I think the mainstream has basically suggested they stay with paper money. Now, we had Dr. Larry Parks uh, on a few minutes ago before you, Eric, on this show, and he uh, pointed out a very interesting sent, actually sent me a little article that I thought was very interesting. I'd like to share it with you and get your response. Uh, he, uh, he said, uh, this was on September 27th, uh, so very recently, the London Bullion Market Association Conference in Berlin, Shane uh, McGuire, 
of the teacher retirement system of Texas explained that for a hypothetical $10 billion pension fund, only about 0.15% or 15 basis points is invested in gold. Thus, out of the approximately uh, approximate 11.6 trillion in U.S. pension funds, only about 17 billion has been allocated to gold in one form or another. Larry then goes on to explain how the uh, World Gold Council uh, sort of went out of its way over many years to try to tell people to, to downplay the notion that gold had any monetary aspect. It was just to be used as jewelry. He also points out how mainstream uh, mainstream institutions like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, various people, were suggesting before that, you know, back in the, I guess, in the 90s, maybe in the 80s, that people should put, um, you know, 5 to 10 percent, that you should have 5 to 10 percent of your portfolio in, uh, in gold. Uh, now, what do you think would happen to the gold price if we started to see that in practice? Right. Yeah. Well, all I can say, Jay, is if everybody did what I did, mm-hmm. I happen to have, for my accounts and me, uh-huh. I have about 70% of all our money in gold and precious metals, the stocks and the bullion. Uh-huh. And the bullion total is about 40%. Mm-hmm. And you know the answer. I mean, there is not, there's no room for everyone to get that involved, and uh, I'm glad that uh, the the article pointed out that uh, the pensions aren't there yet. And I we deal with a few pensions, and I swear they look at you like you've got three eyes when you suggest owning gold or silver, uh, because the trustees can't deal with it. They're just not capable of imagining owning a commodity, and and of course they're not students of the gold and silver game, so they would have no understanding of what what the reasoning was and how they should be reacting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to switch gears just a little bit, Eric, and ask you about some of the products that Sprott offers uh, investors, uh, retail as well as institutional investors. But I guess maybe more retails for uh, retailers for the for listeners of this show. Right. Uh, first of all, for the sake of Canadians that that tune into this show, and a lot of them do, uh, you do have funds that invest in the RSP accounts, the retirement accounts. Oh, sure. We have. Uh a Canadian public Canadian equity fund or an equity fund. We have gold funds. Mm-hmm. We have an energy fund. Uh, we have two hedge funds in Canada, two different hedge funds. Oh, well, two, two that I run. We have another couple that other people here run. We have a small cap fund. Uh, we have a couple of uh, uh, private, equi- uh, private lending and uh, bond funds. Uh, we have a lot of the uh, area covered. We have a fund that's uh, RSP eligible that that owns just gold, and we have also, of course, the physical gold trust that's mm-hmm. available in Canada that's listed on the TSX, and of course, it's listed as well in the and, on, it, on the Amex. And that can be used for retirement accounts in Canada. Uh, the, gold, the gold fund. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, is it is is it difficult for Canadians to move their money from uh, you know is is the the Canadians like Americans have the same problem? Most of the funds are invested in everything that you and I, Eric, probably wouldn't want to own, or, or a good part of what we would not want to own. Right. What um, is it hard for Canadians to get out of one fund and into say one of your one of the Sprott funds? Is there are there usually oh. penalties attached to it? Well, there are some because sometimes there's front end charge and sometimes there's a transfer fee, but you know, I don't think, on the surface, it's not supposed to be difficult. If somebody wants to redeem one of our funds, they simply put in a redemption notice, and the money goes out the next day. That's one of the incredible things about about mutual funds. I mean, you get your money out at NAV, 
the next day, which is mm-hmm. a nice thing to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so theoretically, they could sell out of one fund and move right back into another one same day, and and well, should be a. But I mean, out of I mean, out of Sprott and into another group of funds, or do the, no? What I mean is, if they wanted to sell a bond fund that's owned yeah. by one of our, run by one of our competitors and buy ours, that's not a very that's not difficult to do whatsoever. Okay, good. That's just yeah. that's that's the that answers my question. Um, you, so you have put together a gold and a silver ETF that, that trades down here in the in the states on the New York Stock Exchange. Right, uh, but Jay, it's it's called a trust, and it's a very important distinction. Okay. It's not an ETF, and the reason it's important, and your list, your particular U.S. listeners should know this: the the GLD and the SLV, which are ETFs that own uh, gold and silver respectively, because gold and silver are considered collectibles under the IRS code, the tax rate is at a higher tax rate than the normal capital gains rate. So, for example, today the tax rate's 28% uh, on the ETFs, and on our trust, which is tr- uh, treated like a common share equivalent, uh, the tax rate is th- on capital gains is 15%. So there's a huge tax advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other, there's three other attributes that are important to uh, analyzing either a phys- physical silver trust or the gold trust, and that is that the gold is held by uh, the Royal Canadian Mint, mm-hmm. who's a crown corporation, uh, so we got a AAA-rated government, mm-hmm. and uh, they are the custodian. So that's the counterparty that you have. In the case of the, the gold and silver, your counterparties are HSBC and J.P. Morgan, two names that we've heard recently in the news, <laughs> because they've both been sued for manipulating one of the precious metals. <laughs> and that, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. But that's your counterparty yeah. on um, on those two vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other unique feature that we have is that people, if they want to, can hand in their trust certificates and take the metal. Mm. And one thing, you know, you're probably aware that lots of people are concerned that maybe the gold and silver aren't in the trusts. I must say I don't have an opinion, but I keep my mind open on both options, by the way. And I'm going to love to see some of the evidence that might come out in, in these um, lawsuits that have been filed. Sure. But, but you can, you are allowed to redeem these units for gold and silver. And, of course, I can only assure you that we would be the last people in the world not to have the gold and silver. Because we've been such great believers. Whenever I've owned it, I've always taken physical delivery. I've never had a piece of paper saying I own gold. And I think that's very important that people have that ability. I certainly agree with you there, Eric. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes. I want to ask you uh, probably the most frequently asked questions in the, in the minds of most people, perhaps people that don't own, don't own or know very much about gold, and that is how high will the price of gold go? How, how high will the price of silver go? I personally don't like that, answer, that question. I don't like answering it because I think it's silly to try to measure something in a currency that is not a very reliable yardstick of, and in terms right. of measuring value. So the dollar, you know, God knows how many more of them Mr. Bank he's going to print. But that yeah. said, where, where can the price of gold go? If, if, I mean, just, well, just, 
to really to answer the question even the way you would answer it, I mean, you know, it's all a function of how much printing goes on, right? I mean, you got everyone, every, there's so many countries printing money that we, we all know if you keep printing money, the money becomes valueless and therefore the price of gold becomes infinite. Yes. And as uh, Robert Zellick uh, uh, just said, he, he with the, I think he's with the IMF or the World Bank. World Bank, yes. World Bank, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe we have to consider uh, gold as part of the reserve currency. And I'm sure the reason that those words would come out of his mouth is because he realizes that all the paper sloshing around in almost every country where, that has a senior currency, the governments are involved in printing money. So it's, it's a very ill-defined thing. I don't even try to say where it's going to go. All I know is it's going up. And when I first got into gold back in 2000, I thought, you know what, this is going to be a very, very difficult time because we're going to go a long, sustained bear market, which, of course, the the authorities have been fighting all the way. And I just want to survive on behalf of my clients. So I got to own gold and silver here. Uh And, of course, now we have these things causing the price to go up that I never would have imagined. I never would have imagined we would be printing money. Uh But here we are. And, of course, now the price has even gone higher than anyone would expect. So I think it's going to go up a long way. And if I could leave one other thing with you uh, with respect to silver, I think silver, which historically always traded the ratio 16 to 1 to gold, Mm -hmm. will go back to that ratio. Mm. So if the price of gold is, you know, 3,200, the price of silver is going to be 200. And that's – I can just tell by the, the buying I see coming into the physical silver metal. Mm-hmm. That the price has to go higher because the mm-hmm. the buying's coming in at a ratio of one dollar of silver to five dollars in gold, mm. but the wow. price is fifty to one, and the availability is one hundred and eighteen to one in terms of what you can buy. So, right. pretty well, keen on silver here. Fascinating, uh, fascinating stuff, uh, Eric. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, we've got to, uh, to to call it quits for now. We'd love to have you on some other time. You have so much to share. Thank you. It's very kind of you to share with our listeners. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with some final thoughts on today's show, so don't go away. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Western Pacific is a gold exploration company focused on finding major world-class deposits in the western United States. Western's Ace in the Hole, a project called Mineral Gulch, lies along trend with the Carlin-style Long Canyon deposit, recently acquired by Frontier Development. Catalyst going forward will be from drill results. One drill campaign is underway at the South Lita Project in Nevada, with permitting underway to drill 33 holes at Mineral Gulch. Western Pacific trades on the Venture Exchange under the ticker WRP. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to jtaylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. That's all the time we have for this week. Next week, I should be back with a clear voice to talk to our guest, Florian Siegfried, Peter Granich, Chen Lin, and Dave Skarika. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.